Well, we are starting a new series this week. Uh, we're going to begin a journey through the book of First Timothy, and, uh, and that should, by my uh, count, that should take us all the way through the spring up to the summer. So, um, man, we're excited to dig into this, into this letter, but, but before we do, I want to share with you just a bit as, as to why we are uh, taking a look at the book of First Timothy. Uh, and uh, as, I, as I look around our, our church and where we have come in the past few years, I am, uh, I am finding myself both humbled and at times uh, woefully unprepared to, to be in the place where we are to take this journey as far as where God is taking us. Uh, and, and, uh, I, I, I'm reminded of, I was at a conference one year and, and this one pastor got up and he was leading this really large organization and, uh, these huge worship gatherings and services and, and, uh, just this amazing movement. And he shared with us right in the middle of it. He said, now out of all of this stuff, I need to let you in on a little secret. I have no idea what I'm doing. And it was powerful because I was like, you have no idea what you're doing? Because it certainly seems like you do. But the point came across uh, only as I continued to work in ministry and lead and shepherd people. That in reality, I really do have no idea what I'm doing. In, In the sense that the only times when I felt like I did know what I was doing, when I had a plan worked out, to, to do church ministry, to be a, a church community in Cottonwood, to, to have this sort of mission and vision and goals and all of that. Every time it was my plan, it failed miserably. And you may not realize that, but man, there was a lot of tanking going on in the first three years where it was just feeling, man, this did not go the way I thought in my head it was all going to go. And I've realized something, that what spiritual transformation always does in our lives, without fail, spiritual transformation can be summed up in this this beautiful saying, by God's grace, I am not who I once was, and by God's grace, I am not who I soon will be. That, to me, is the journey of spiritual transformation. I can constantly look at that in my own life. That that who I was, and as much as, as great as maybe I thought I was, man, by God's grace, I am glad that I am not where I once was. And I know it is only by Him and because of Him that where I go in life, if I am trusting in Him, will not be because I have made myself who I am. Only because of who He is and how He has made and shaped and formed me. It's humbling to think of. I don't say that with pride. I don't say that with, I say that with joy, but I don't say that with pride. Man, it's the most humbling thing that you can possibly say if, if it's really true. But I think I, I'm, I can say that confidently with our church. By God's grace, we are not who we once were. And by God's grace, we are not who we will soon be. 
The movement of God not only demands change within its people, it perpetuates it. When I, what I see as I am looking out is a people who are being stirred up by the things of God. That excites me. By his compassion and mercy, by his justice, by his loving kindness. I see a, a church that is not built up by programmed service, but by genuine care and the promptings of the Spirit to love one another. Some of the testimonies that I have seen coming out of the church is needs have been found and people just meet them, and sometimes you don't hear about them, ever. And then, and then suddenly you do, and you go, that was happening in our church. There's life going. Not because we, 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 we built up teams to, to, to do that work, but because people genuinely responding with kindness and mercy in their hearts. Powerful. It's not all the way there, but there are these flurries of spiritual movement that are springing up, and it is exciting. Our community, I think, is heading into a season of rebirth and renewal and redemption, and, and God is, has taken this people over in the last year or so, and stirred up a deeper dependency on him, a need to be led by him, to trust in him, and to follow wherever he leads. And so that leading has, has prompted us to lean more into God's word and to revisit what the church was meant to look like, how it ought to be organized, what our priorities are, and, and why we do what we do, not just what are we supposed to do. It's causing us to ask questions like, who leads the church? What are elders and pastors and deacons? Anyway, have you ever thought about that? What is a pastor? Why do churches have pastors? No other organization in the world has a pastor, and yet churches have pastors, and yet we somehow have figured out what that means. But do we actually know what that means? Why do we call it that? Why do we have elders and deacons? These are weird terms if you're not a part of the church with any regularity. Why do we do that? Why does the Bible refer to them, and why is that important that we have them? And then, and then if, you, if you're continuing to ask these questions, okay, so we have those, but why are so many of these roles male-oriented? Why are they mostly men? And then further on, how do we... If we're supposed to have these and, and whatever, but how do we train and mentor and encourage leaders and servants in the church? And more importantly, to what end are we doing all this training and mentoring and encouraging? What we find in Paul's letters to Timothy are, are many of the answers to these questions as the apostle is gently guiding and, and leading this, what he calls this true son in the faith toward a courageous leadership of the community of Jesus. Now, this is a letter written by an older pastor, preacher, missionary to a young pastor, elder, teacher. And you may not see yourself as a pastor or a deacon or an elder. And again, you may have no idea what those terms even mean. And that's okay. That's okay. We'll find out together. And in fact, 
it may be better for you if you don't know right now. Because so many of us, as we walk through this letter and we discover this, uh, this, what, how Paul explains it, some of us may have to, leave, to set aside our, our preconceptions and traditions at the door to get to the heart of what the, the gospel is actually saying. But all of us, make no mistake, have a part to play in this church. All of us are ministers of the gospel. We are inspired by the good news of Christ, transformed and changed by him to share with one another the grace and mercy and forgiveness that has been lavished on us. If that's you, then this letter is for you. If you are a minister of the gospel, and I would say, if you have been changed by the gospel, if it has affected you, if you have given your life to Christ and you have committed to following him, then you're a minister of the gospel. At least you have been commissioned and charged to be. So this is for you too. So we're going to pray and then we are going to dig into the text this morning. Father, I just pray that you would, um, you would show us the, the, the beauty and the truth that, that lies within your words to us, that it would encourage us, that it would fill us, that it would change us, that it would, it would inspire us, it would convict us, but it would also, that it would draw us to a deeper relationship with you. May we be marked by the good words, the good news of your message to us, the revealing of who you are in your word. May we, may we enjoy it. May we savor it. May we just dwell in it today. Thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, if you have your Bibles, we're going to be in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 1 through 11, all the ones today. 1 Timothy 1, 1 through 11. 1, 1. 1, 1, 1, 1. <laughs> if you don't have your Bibles, uh, a Bible, we have, uh, we have a few in the back uh, that we would love to put in your hands. Uh, if you don't have a Bible at all, man, go ahead and take one of those home with you. Uh, it's also going to be up here on the screen, but uh, just, uh, or just, man, find somebody close to you and read along. Verse 1. Paul an apostle of Christ Jesus by the command of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus our hope, to Timothy, my true son in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. All right, so Paul is writing this letter to Timothy. And Timothy is his, his friend and his Protege, Paul met Timothy uh, on one of his missionary journeys through, um, through, through Asia Minor and he, um, around, uh, around Ephesus, which Asia Minor is now what we would call Turkey in modern day geography. So he, he found Ephesus, which is a port city, and he starts working his way through. And Lystra is kind of like right in the middle of this whole, this whole country. And so... Um, Paul is going around and he's starting all of these new churches 
and raising up a large team of co-workers to accomplish this mission. So the, the term apostle that Paul uses there is essentially someone who goes, a sent one, a missionary. Um, it, it, the way that we, we can use the apostle in, in little a terms would be somebody who operates in very missional, mission-minded ways. They see themselves as one who goes out and starts and, and establishes and, and brings the gospel wherever it needs to go. So Paul, Paul is an apostle in this way as he starts new churches and raises up new teams of people within each of these cities to lead those churches. And so Paul, as he, he comes, he meets, uh, first he meets Paul's, uh, I think it's his grandmother and then his mother and then Timothy. And Acts chapter 16 is, tells this story a little bit, and, and Paul is so impressed by Timothy that, that he ends up coming with him on several journeys, and, and um, Paul actually remains in, Ephes, in, in Lystra with Timothy for a long time, training and teaching and mentoring him and bringing him under his, his robes. And so there's many, it, it makes sense in so much why Timothy is called a true son in the faith. He is, in so many ways, Paul is a spiritual father to this man, Timothy. Cares about him, raises him up in the faith, brings him into the knowledge of Jesus and watches him transform and grow and mature. That, to me, is spiritual fatherhood, something that, as a church, we are, we are actively trying to do as a community. We are in the process of, of seeking out and raising up and training elders within our church. But we don't want elders in the sense that we are trying to build up and raise up managers and organizational leaders and directors of programs and organizations. We want spiritual dads. We want dads who are going to care about their spiritual children, who love them, who raise them, who discipline them the way that I would discipline my own kids, who would reclaim the, the idea of spiritual parenthood that we would see each and every one of us built up into spiritual maturity. Adulthood. When I raise my kids and I send them out after 20 years, my hope is that as they are sent out, they will be adults, able to make wise decisions, to grow, to, to be safe when they are encountering different things, to say, I've been trained for this. I'm ready for this. I'm going to love a, a spouse well. I'm going to treat my children respectfully. I'm going to work uh, as to the Lord. I'm not going to be bent and swayed all about. That's for my own kids, my flesh and blood. Is it not too far-fetched to believe that, that eldership, pastoring, shepherding, fathering, spiritual parenting in the Bible would operate the same way? It really is about how we care for our children. 
Now, later on, Paul, uh, as he has gone about, he, he hears about this, this group of leaders in Ephesus, which is the port city in, in Turkey, and, and they, they've been spreading these, these weird ideas about Jesus, and then they're leading people to fall, and they're saying, okay, you have to, first of all, you, ha- you have to believe this about Jesus, and it's way off base. And then he says, and now you have to do all of these things in order to follow Jesus, and those things are way off base. And these leaders have infiltrated the church and have authority and influence And they're taking this church that was once a very influential gospel-centered community and it is driving them in a direction that that starts to not look very much like that gospel-centered community. And so who does Paul send to rewrite things, to bring things back? He sends his son, Timothy, his true son in the faith. And this letter is a follow-up to Timothy to see basically how are things going. Can I offer you some wisdom to see how, like, how you can uh, fulfill this mission to, to lead the church, to train up new shepherds, and to always keep the main thing, the main thing. To be a church that is utterly and singularly conformed to the gospel. That's kind of the intro to this time. Now, now let's see how Paul kind of kicks off his letter. Verse 3, he says, As I urged you when I went to Macedonia, remain in Ephesus so that you may instruct certain people not to teach false doctrine or to pay attention to endless myths or to myths and endless genealogies. These promote empty speculations rather than God's plan which operates by faith. So as we said before, there are these people in Ephesus that are, that are coming in and they're bringing with them kind of these, these strange, different ideas. And, and at, when you look through um, later on, you can see a lot of the ideas that are, are, are being raised here, they're stemming from the book of Genesis. They're bringing in these kind, of, um, these kind of like Genesis ideas all the way back here, and they're kind of like trying to, to bring them in with this sort of like spiritual mysticism that says, you know what, if we really want to be the right church, we need to go back to some of, we need to start paying attention to these things all the way back here. And it brought up really strange concepts in the church. And they got kind of enamored with this sort of like, hyper-spirituality that, that stopped being about the grace and mercy and forgiveness of Christ. And it started becoming a, more about almost like this intellectual ascension. Paul mentions some of the stuff later in, in 1 Timothy chapter 4. He says they are basically, they're like promoting veganism and forbidding marriages within the church. And they're creating, because of all of this, they're creating all kinds of division and and destruction and disruption in the church because they are so focused on the margins of faith instead of the center. Now, hear me out on this. I am not saying that it is wrong for you to read 
the genealogies of the Bible. They're in there. They're good. They're helpful. I think it's fine if you read and study those genealogies. I think there are some very interesting points that are made in the history of Genesis. And and later on, there is a powerful story in the lineage of Jesus in the Gospels. But don't put your hope in them. Don't structure your life and the good news that you share around them. I've, I've listened to certain Christian apologists, and an apologist is someone who seeks to defend Christianity with logical arguments and, and rhetoric. And I'm not against that as either, but, but some of them will use genealogies to do things like prove the age of the earth or to prove the existence of ancient Israel or of Jesus. And I'm not, I do not deny the historical veracity of the Bible, that what it speaks of actually happened or is true. I would never deny the historical veracity of the Scriptures. What I am saying is, if the foundation of your faith is the opposite of faith, the conviction of things that have been seen versus the conviction of things yet unseen, then you might be trusting in something other than Jesus. Because what happens if the, 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 the thing that I've often seen, and I've, I've seen arguments with this, and they, people who, who, who say they're, they're constantly trying to figure out, okay, well, Joshua that this many arm lengths across the sea, and then people looked it up, and it was actually more than that. And so does that mean that the Bible is no longer true? Does that mean I can no longer believe this? What do I do? If that's not true, then that means Jesus not, must not be true. And if that's not true, then what am I doing? And we go, hold on. Maybe their arms were different lengths than yours. It's important for us to understand that the Bible speaks truth from the perspective of those who are speaking. And that's important. But again, coming back to that, you can build and raise up and defend your faith with facts and figures and and abstract knowledge of historical figures and facts. But is that what Jesus called us to do? Is that where you're finding your hope? and your your courage and your strength. And it's not just genealogies. We elevate people in the Bible and in Christian tradition to mythic hero status. They become the model to emulate, and they become the standard to reach. What happens when those people fail and fall? What happens when Uh, leaders of prominent churches and denominations suddenly fall into moral failure and are dismissed from the church? What happens when celebrities who are Christians suddenly denounce their faith? Does that shake us? Does that cause us to worry and fear? We may have elevated their stories to mythic status. Perhaps more widespread is the focus on 
minor doctrinal issues within the church. Uh, the church, the, the broader church of Jesus, is unbelievably fragmented. The last count that I think I read was that there are over 38,000 different denominations of Christianity. 38,000 different denominations. Most, most various religions, you can count the different sects or denominations on like one hand. We have 38,000. Has Satan not caused utter division within our church? And, and here's the thing. They are not divided because they disagree on the essentials. Most true Christian churches will agree that Jesus is the Son of God and that trusting him brings about life out of death, that God is the creator of all things, and that the Bible is inspired and authoritative. These are what we would call hills to die on. What ends up splitting churches is usually the stuff that ought never to divide people. Stuff like which party you voted for, or how you dress at Sunday gatherings, or whether or not you dance or drink alcohol, or discipline your kids rightly. Stuff like church governing structures and spiritual gifts and soteriology. Uh, at at uh, First Baptist Church, we have worked at um, developing this, this tiny little brochure. I mean, it's, it's literally this. That's it. But it's called, it's called The Four Hills. And uh, we, have, um, we have about 30 copies out on the back table. And uh, man, I encourage you as you leave today, pick one up as you go out just to take a look at it. What we've done is, is we've tried to say, hey, there are, there are what we call four hills. One hill is the hill to die on. These are the essentials as a church. Any church that holds to those essentials of faith, we would call them Christians. We would love on them. We would, we would welcome them into the family of God. There are also hills to divide on, hills to debate on, and hills to decide for yourself. I'm not going to go into all of those. You can pick up a, a little booklet, a little pamphlet for yourself. But what I will encourage you to say is, in Christian circles, we have tended to take the most minor of doctrinal ideas, and we've created binary structures that make it either you're in or you're out. And what tends to happen is that the more we pile and pile and pile and pile a lot more things onto the out, the things that, that, that kick you out of the community more than that welcome you in. And so uh, that's an important way for us to begin to distinguish and make distinct how those things are working. That we would, and the, the goal of that is not that we would overemphasize and over, overindulge ourselves in the minor things but that we would focus on the majors. That's most important. In essentials, unity. In non-essentials, charity. And in all things, Jesus Christ. The more, though, that we continue to, to go through, there are these other voices that are, are shouting at us and and. And, and throwing in more and more information that says, you need to know this, you need to learn this, you need to understand this if you want to be a Christian. 
And there are endless points of information that you can dive into and explore and walk through and, 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 and engage in and surround yourself with and obsess over that will ultimately not lead to transformation in your heart. When you obsess over anything and everything but Jesus, you craft for yourself a faith that is founded on and supported by anything but Jesus. Not only will that faith fail to bring about any real spiritual change or growth, but it will also crumble at the first test of strength. If you struggle right now with, with, with your Christianity or with calling yourself a Christian or even having this idea that faith is still important, it's very possible that the issue is not that Jesus is no longer sufficient for your faith. It's that Jesus is no longer the center of your faith. And I think the major reason is that as our empty speculations and our mythological Christianity is debunked, and questioned, and torn down, we lose the truth of Jesus in the weeds. And yet, if our church is focused on things that, if, if, if as a church we are focused on the things that will lead to division and the tearing down of others, we have lost the goal, the end, the aim of everything that teaching and instructing and hearing God's word is supposed to bring about. There is, however, an aim that we are reaching for. And Paul tells us that in verse 5. He says, Now the goal of our instruction is love that comes from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. Some have departed from these and turned aside to fruitless passion. They want to be teachers of the law, although they don't understand what they are saying or what they are insisting on. Man, verse 5 is kind of like the key verse for this morning. The goal of our instruction is love that comes from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. And the word for goal here is telos. Telos, meaning perfection, wholeness, the end or the aim. What is the, what is the ultimate objective that you, we are hoping to see brought to completion, to fulfillment? And that goal is love. The goal is love. Love for God, love for one another. The aim of all of this is that it is driving us toward a state of being and action that promotes kindness, compassion, mercy, and forgiveness for the other, not of us. And Paul says that this love comes from where? It comes from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere or authentic 
The goal of all of this, of ministry in the church as we, as we serve one another, of coming up and teaching to you on Sunday mornings, of, of, of meeting together in homes and eating together and, and reading our Bibles together and praying for one another, all of that, the, the, the end that we're looking for is to be washed in grace, to be a people that are so transformed by Jesus and so reoriented toward his, his ways and his good things, so grounded in truth that there is no choice but for love for this God and love for your fellow man to just erupt out of you. We want the, we want the good news of God to just be bringing forth, just be exploding out of us. That is this idea that if, if, if it is good news to us, that better become evident. Sometimes I feel like when we communicate the gospel in our, in, in, out of obligation, out of expectations, because we're supposed to, man, when the gospel is forced, when worship is, is done through, through gnashed teeth and ar- crossed arms, when it is not a pure heart, a good conscience, sincere faith that drives the church, the Spirit of God feels lost in the midst. And we feel like we're checking off boxes when we come on Sunday mornings or we meet together or we minister and we serve one another. It becomes our duty, not our joy. The gospel of Jesus is not intellectual assent or is it, nor is it informational tools that you use to, to build and erect your own self-righteous kingdom. It is a good news that conforms you to the image of Christ, that reshapes you and sends you to go and to reconcile all people to him. It is a law that brings us to our knees, sure, but it is also a good grace that puts our trust in a good Savior. And it does it together. It humbles us but it also saves us and unites us. If that is true, I urge you then to be careful of a law without grace, which is what Paul goes on to warn Timothy about. He says some have departed from these and they have turned aside to fruitless discussion. He says they want to be teachers of the law, but they don't understand what they're saying or what's going on. They don't want to be learners of the law. They want to be teachers of it. Now, I've always said this. I want teachers in our church who are learners first. I don't, please do not come and say, I need some material to teach others. I don't need to learn it. I just need to teach it. I'm sure I've already got it down. You are not the authority, the master. You are the learner. You are the student. 
The best teachers are the ones that go, this has changed my life. I want to let you know about it. It's not those that go, you don't know this? You're such, you're such a dummy. Be careful of a law without grace. A law without grace, in, in, in my opinion, can produce two kinds of people. The first are the teachers who use commands and ordered ways of God as a bludgeon to beat people over the head. The law does not convict them personally. It doesn't put them in their place before a perfectly holy God. It only reinforces their belief that they are the right kind of people, the ones who have it all together, who have been put on this earth to render God's judgment on his behalf. The second kind are the mystics. And the mystics are those who, who are searching the law and, and the Bible for the secret codes of Scripture. And they're, they're hoping to unlock some sort of vague spirituality and existential transcendentalism. And they are they're searching, they're on this journey to discover the truth behind the Bible. Something no one has ever seen before. And, 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 and when you realize that, they go, man, did you, did you ever see this before? Man, you should. I am so much better because of it. But it's usually not like, uh, I don't want to draw from, from pop Christianity because I don't want to throw anybody under the bus. But there are many examples in, in, in what we call pop culture Christianity that, are, that promote some sort of biblical idea and in some sort of concept that should make your life better, that should give you more authority and power, that should enhance your influence and, your, and make you feel better. And, and really what that is, that's not the gospel because it's not humbling you. It's not bringing you to your knees before a holy God. It's giving you power to, to run your own life. It's therapy, it's deism, it's moralism, it's not the gospel. In both of these cases, the law, how you do your Christianity, becomes your salvation. The thing that, if you practice it just right, you will discover the life that you have always dreamed, the influence that you've always craved, the freedom you've always desired. And yet, the purpose of the law is not to create right and wrong thought leaders or to produce mystical vegans and weird cult-like relationships. If you are a vegan, that's totally fine. I need, to, I need to clarify. It's not wrong to be a vegan. It's just wrong to be an ultra-spiritual vegan that makes everybody else feel awful about it. And, and, and you place your trust and your hope in, in all of your faith in your veganism. That's, that's the kind of veganism I'm warning you about. But, hey, man, if you want to be a vegan, enjoy not eating meat. Have a good time. The purpose of the law is not to save. The purpose of the law is to expose the truth about the human condition. 
It is not the Savior, but it leads people to see their brokenness and nudge them toward the grace of God that is revealed in Jesus Christ, who came to save sinful and broken people like me. And Paul will go on to say, and I am the worst of them. That is exactly what Paul says right here. Verse 8. But we know that the law is good, provided one uses it legitimately. We know that the law is not meant for a righteous person, but for the lawless and rebellious, for the ungodly and sinful, for the unholy and irreverent, for those who kill their fathers and mothers, for murderers, for the sexually immoral and homosexuals, for slave traders, liars, perjurers, and for whatever else is contrary to the sound teaching that conforms to the gospel concerning the glory of the blessed God, which was entrusted to me. I want you to do a quick exercise for me. If you have your Bibles, go back to that passage, verses 8 through 11. Look through that list And in your mind, which, which of the things on that list just pops out as, the, as just pops out to you? Which of the things in that list pops out to you right away? You don't need to share it. I have a guess, though. I have a guess. The thing that popped out to you probably has absolutely nothing to do with you. It probably has something to do with somebody else. It's very easy to look at a list like that and go, yep, they're terrible, awful, can't believe them. Or to look at that list and go, how, how dare Paul? Stop calling people out like that. It's not fair of him to do. But in any regard, do we look at that list and go, that's me? Do you look at the list and, and say, that's me? He's talking about me. Most of the time, we draw one or two things that are really, really important in our culture or our society that we feel like are messing things up, and we go, yeah, see, that's the problem. Paul's right on. If we didn't have these sin things in the world, we'd be great. That's not the point. Paul is not calling out specific and clear things that do not conform to the gospel concerning the glory of the blessed God. He's not calling them out so that people would be puffed up in self-righteousness to go, see, that's what's wrong with the church. He's calling them out to go, you're on that list. I guarantee you, you are on that list. You may not have killed your father. You may be angry with him. You may want nothing to do with your parents. They may be as good as dead to you. You may not have perjured in court. Have you used the name of God to build up your own influence and authority and power? You may not 
be sleeping with somebody of the same gender as you? But have you looked at someone else and objectified them and used the image of them as merely body parts to be, to be separated and taken apart to be used for your own selfish enjoyment and pleasures. Have you ever rebelled? Have you ever been sinful? Have you ever profaned something that, was, that should be sacred? For whatever else is contrary to the sound teaching that conforms to the gospel concerning the glory of the blessed God, which was entrusted to me. I beg you, do not look at that list and, and, and make a second list of all of the people in your mind who deserve judgment. Paul is asking you to take a look at that list and look to yourself. To see your own brokenness. I love what Tim Keller says. He says, the gospel is this. We are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe. Yet, at the very same time, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared the power behind this as we come to terms with who we are and, and, and who we are in ourselves ought to bring us to a point where we absolutely need the love and acceptance of Jesus more than we ever could imagine. And the good news about that is that Jesus did not come to condemn. He came to rescue he came to save. Yes, the law is for the lawless and the rebellious, for the ungodly and sinful, for the unholy and irreverent. And guess what? That's me. And that's you. We are all on our own, in our own strength, by our own motives and plans and goals. We are that which is contrary to the gospel. And yet, in Christ, through him and him alone, we are brought to experience a love for God and for one another, a love that turns the spotlight away from the self and shines the glory of God through us, purifying our hearts, renewing that internal compass that reorients our lives around what is good, which is God, instead of what is evil, which is me. And it puts our, the foundation of what we believe, not on the margins, not on the ticky-tack theologies and weird dogmas, but on Christ and Christ alone. That he is the fulfillment of the law, that he is the fulfillment of, of everything that leads to him. He is, through the lens of Jesus, we find the truth of the scriptures. If you're having a hard time understanding the Bible, start with Jesus and let him be the lens through which you see the rest of your life. 
Here's what Paul ultimately is coming down to in his encouragement to Timothy. It doesn't matter if you have the perfect leadership structure, and it doesn't matter if you have the perfect liturgy, your worship service. The goal of all of this, the meeting together, serving one another, giving of our offerings, eating together, serving, singing, is, is all about God conforming us to the gospel. A good news of self-sacrifice that brings about grace and mercy and forgiveness because that is what Jesus does for us. What we experience every day when we are confronted with it and how we are being shaped and formed to live and to love as Christ first loved us. Don't be distracted by empty speculations, endless myths and genealogies. Don't turn aside to fruitless discussion to be teachers of the law. The aim of our charge The goal of our instruction is what? Love. A love that comes from a pure heart, a good conscience, sincere faith. We're going to transition to a time of uh, communion. The Lord's table. And this is a time where as a church we gather together And we approach his table, a table that is is filled with the body and blood of Christ that is, is, is pointing out to us the sacrifice that Jesus made on our behalf, not so that we would wrestle with the minors, but so that we would focus on him and him alone. It's a time where, where, where Jesus, as we come and we are, are face-to-face with his sacrifice, that we are confronted by all of the things that he has died for, all of those things that are contrary to the good news, all of the things that reveal our brokenness within us. As we come and we partake, what we are doing in that moment is we are partnering with his death and resurrection to say, I, in Christ, in Christ, I have died to those things that put me at odds with him. And I am raised to life in newness of flesh, of of spirit, one with Christ conformed to the gospel, purified in heart, driven to love. We're going to sing uh, a song.